Welcome to Taiwan R22 on King Who's Dragon Inn from 1967. And for once, we're talking available Taiwanese cinema, kids. <laughs> Taiwanese cinema that we discuss, it can be prolific and important, but still sort of lost on home video and buried on VCD or crappy DVDs. But uh, since the movie in question has been part of the discussion and somewhat available before, but now to the masses via a shiny new restoration... I thought Taiwan War would and should take the opportunity to tackle a high-profile Taiwanese movie for once. So, me, Kennedy, and Todd Statman are going to discuss uh, King Who and uh, this uh, movie, said movie, also known as Dragon Gate. Dean. So, welcome, buddy, and how are things in multimedia land for multimedia man? <laughs> things are fine. Things are fine. I'm very much looking forward to this very classy uh, episode today that we're having strangely um urine joke free this episode compared to our last batch of episodes yeah it's a it's an adjustment but i think we can do it like we're, when we see polly quander on screen like oh boy is she gonna jump on squids or not no not in this movie <laughs> like it's gonna be yeah. another 10 years before you see that kid no she's very severe in this movie which is also very cute but yeah there's there's I don't think she cracks a smile in like the entire movie. You you saying that uh, reminded me of a joke that uh, a friend of mine made of another actress in the King uh, King Who movie, uh, Shu Feng, uh-huh. who's in uh, Touch of Zen and The Fate of Li Khan. She's mm-hmm. always the super stern lady. Like uh, count how many times she cracks a smile, and you'll end up with a big old zero after three hours of Touch of Zen. So <laughs> so, but uh, she's very good. She's very good. Um. So speaking of uh, multimedia man and multimedia land, why don't you plug uh, whatever you want to plug of your creative endeavors, my friend? Oh, okay. Well, you know, as always, you can catch up on my reviews of uh, world genre cinema on my blog, Die Danger, Die, Die, Kill, which is Die Danger, Die, Die, Kill dot blogspot.com. And uh, if you go there, just uh, if you go over to the right, the right menu bar, you'll see links to uh, our Facebook page. Our, my Tumblr's gone, but the Twitter... <gasps> All that I know, oh, tumbled away. I was not, yeah, <laughs> I, I hadn't tumbled in quite many months, so I just got rid of it. And uh, oh, and I got a uh, a letterboxed account too, which I'm having a lot of fun with. What's that? I've made a few. It's a sort of a, it's like a cross between I forget what that site was where you could like choose movies and like make lists of your favorite movies. It's sort of a social media site. This centers around film and it has and it uses the um, it doesn't use the IMDb. It uses another database, but it's a pretty comprehensive database of films. Like I was able to make a list of uh, Sampot Sands movies. I was able to make a list of, you know, weirdo Taiwanese monster movies. So it's pretty it's pretty intense. And then you can friend people and you can follow people. (laughs) <laughs> they are not paying me for this plug, but it's uh, it's very fun. And then, of course, I'm doing the pop offensive thing every uh, every month. So the last one we did was our all girl uh, second anniversary episode. It was really really good, and you can listen to it by going to the website kgpc969.org and go to the pop offensive archives where all 25 of our shows are available for streaming 
ne never a shortage of uh, good pop songs out there, ensuring that you have a radio show uh, all you know always lined up, always ready to re be researched and all of that and programmed. So good, good, good. Yeah, and some of which you've recommended to me. Where we we played Brain Pool and uh, Atomic. Uh, what was what's that band? Atomic, Atomic Swing, I believe. Atomic yeah, Swing, great. Stone Rain to the Groove. Yeah. That's a '90s throwback, all right. But still, good pop music, uh, nonetheless. It's, uh, it's, um, you know, I grew up in the '90s. I was sort of key, keyed into the Swedish scene, uh, pop scene, and uh -huh. most of the bands I liked uh, more along, not the indie pop, but more, more the bubbly pop, like Brainpool uh, certainly was. So it's uh, si si simple and sweet, but uh, there's an art to that as well. Oh, I mean, Sweden is definitely the premier producer of pop music in the world as far as i'm concerned we do all right indeed and, you do and uh, not that i have anything to do with it i just sit there and listen, <laughs> listen to my noise well core. you know there's still time there's still time ken you could have a singing career. max martin look out they're gonna max produce, martin, produce exactly. the shit out of stuff yeah now. max martin and dr luke give them a call you know and <laughs> just sing into the phone i'm sure they'll be over at your place i got a blue i got a blue microphone i podcast with is that good enough no <laughs> Uh, but for the rest of the plugs, uh, this is Taiwan War on the Podcast on Fire network. Uh, we are available on podcastonfire.com, uh, along with plenty of other choices on Hong Kong cinema, Korean cinema, Japanese cinema, and even uh, bonus episodes uh, posted every now and again. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. And we have a couple of handy buttons uh, on our site as well, leading to our social media, such as our Facebook page, which uh, will neatly lead you to our fa Facebook discussion group as well. Uh, we have a Twitter account. Uh, we have an iTunes feed as well for the podcast that uh, is available in the form of a button. So uh, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment if you want to say something about the show. And finally, click the Stitcher radio button if you want to stream us either online or on their site. You'll find links to the applications available for smart devices via the Apple App Store and Google Play. And Taiwanese movies is right up my alley on SoGoodReviews.com, not just on a podcast, but I review these kind of movies mixed with uh, Hong Kong movies of a variety of genres, uh, focusing on ninja stuff, of course, but uh, adult movies. But uh, anything I find uh, compelling, I'll put a, a few words on uh, paper and post on the site uh, when I can. So it's uh, all a mixture of stuff there on SoGoodReviews.com and my video hub is LizzyKVideo.com where I post simple spoken audio video review reviews of my main uh, larger reviews every now and again. And my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. So I think that's us. Uh, so let's uh, do a rundown of what's to come. We don't have plenty of stuff here, but we have sections per definition there are two of them so i thought i'd still place running times for these on the show post and let you know what's coming up uh, despite and these running times may show up in your podcast application as well i'm saying may because in my uh, i use um, an apple device in my current app they don't display the entirety of what i put in the show post anymore and that means some of the running times will be excluded unfortunately so some updates started restricting what's in the show post but uh, regardless uh, that's out of my hands uh, so I, i've given you a heads up here we'll put it in the online show post and uh, what's coming up is uh, first a little bit of a talk um, and summary of the life and career of uh, director king who Essentially from Taiwan to Pasadena. Pasadena? Yeah, there's, there's your teacher. Like, it started in one place, ended in another place for uh, for King Who. And we'll conclude the review with the review of Dragon Inn. 
So let's get to it. Only one movie, only one, only two sections. So here we go. Uh, plot from the Eureka Entertainment release of the film. And uh, this is from 1967, by the way. Uh, so it's the middle of the Ming Dynasty. The powerful eunuch Cao, played by Pai Ying, has killed the loyal minister Yu and Yu's children are exiled to the border, whereupon Cao undertakes efforts to massacre the remnants of the family. As Yu's children take refuge in the Dragon Gate Inn, Xiao, the righteous swordsman, played by Shi Jun, and the surviving loyalists of Minister Yu engage in a series of battles to the death against the forces of the bloodthirsty eunuch. I have a question. Yes, already. Sir. The character that Polly Kwan plays in the movie, she's one of the surviving loyalists, right? She's not so, yes. one of these children. Yeah, it's a little confusing. Uh, I just wanted to... I don't think I don't even know what her name was supposed to be. No, they they don't they mention it uh, over and over again. But yeah, yes, uh, Polyquan indeed show up at the midway point and uh, and uh, provides a, a striking presence that uh, would ensure her stardom, as we've talked about on uh, prior episodes. Yeah, well, she's top build in the movie. I noticed at least in the credits of the version I watched. So uh, I'd argue her and uh, Shijun, the male actor, could be a you know. Yes. There's our lead. So, but the, do, do you remember when we talked of um, Polyquan, if we determine how old she was when this movie was shot? I'd guess 17? I think she was 18. But 17, you know, late teens. So, so, so what a start for, uh, for her career yes. and all of that, and looking very striking. But uh, that's uh, Paul Kwan for you. Let's uh, talk uh, King Who in, instead. I mean, not a lot of background exists for Dragon Inn as such, uh, but uh, even on the Blu-ray, they don't do extensive like behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, 15 audio commentaries on the movie or anything. But within the bio of King Who here, we're going to... Um, you know, give you a sense of uh, who he was, uh, what he, you know, what he was doing, where he was going, what he was accomplishing with the wuxia style in uh, movies. Uh, you know, starting with Come Drink with Me, leading into Dragon Inn, and so forth. So you, you're going to get an idea of uh, what was uh, going on in the genre and at the time. So let's uh, talk then of the famous and still famous uh, director uh, whose work and uh, you know th this is typical trailer box art nonsense. His work has inspired generations of filmmakers <laughs> such as Choi Hak, Ang Lee, Shang Yimo, etc. And uh, it's certainly true for Choi Hak and Ang Lee. They've been very vocal about their admiration for King Hu. Uh, I remember Tony Raines told a story about because Zhang Yimou, when he made, you know, Hero and House of Flying Daggers, it's sort of unmistakably like this genre and sort of Dragon Inn esque, I yes. guess. And he was saying, like, nah, I don't know anything about anyone else. I just do my movies. Really? <laughs> okay. Uh <-huh. laughs> that came all from you, yeah. Wu Xia? What is that? Yeah. I made up that word. <laughs> but anyway, King Hu was born in 1931 in Beijing and developed an interest in writing early in his life. And by 1949, though, communists were getting into a position of power in China and he fled to Hong Kong, presumably with his family. Rather than pursuing the Hong Kong film industry, you know, intensely hardcore, he kind of fell into it rather. Uh, because he was hired in a variety of capacities for movies, as both art director, uh, painting movie posters, and even acting. And uh, while working at the uh, Hua Studios, he was tapped to fill the role of an 18-year-old son in a movie directed by Jian Jun. Documentaries on this story refer to this as a 1958 movie called The Man Who Got Slapped, but the main title is, according to a Hong Kong movie database, Laughter and Tears. 
but uh, it was not his debut movie. He has acting credits going by going back to 1956. So uh, and this was 1958, The Man Who Got Slapped. But uh, maybe this was due to him being well received in the role. He, he didn't have any formal training as an actor, but uh, he, he gained somewhat of a popular reputation as an on-screen performer, especially for his comedic persona. And uh, him and fellow Beijing friend and legendary director Li Hanxiang, uh, director of Love Eternal, Golden Lotus, uh, many famous operas, and also some uh, very smutty movies as well uh, throughout his uh, career. He, he did it all. Uh, but uh, his friend Li Hanxiang both worked at the studio I mentioned, uh, and it, it was headed for bankruptcy, uh, and the man worked for free. So, I mean, uh, there's, your, uh, there's your spiral downwards there, but they, they gained experience, of course. Um, and uh, in another field that King Hu was uh, simultaneously gaining experience in was as a broadcaster for Voice of America. But eventually he was roped in by friend Li Hanxiang to try out for Shaw Brothers in Hong Kong. And who was accepted and signed on as writer and actor, working on uh, Li Hanxiang's uh, Huang Mei opera The Kingdom and the Beauty from 1959 as an actor. And he started also to get directorial experiences as the years went on, working on his friend Li Hanxiang's classic opera Love Eternal, as his uh, friend needed help finishing it. Uh, and there was also a race at the same time between Shaw Brothers and the Cafe Studios to complete their versions of this uh, story, sometimes referred to as uh, the Butterfly Lovers. Uh, uh, so King actually has an assistant directing credit on the movie. And that story, by the way, it's been you know told numerous times, including by Choi Hak. He, he made a movie called The Lovers, which is based on the same uh, uh, material. That wasn't an opera, though, so that's that's optional to do when you're uh, when you're tapping into that written work. Yeah, sometimes referred to as the Butterfly Lovers. But I said he gained assistant directing credit uh, on the movie, but. At one point, he started to direct himself, and Todd is here to tell us a little bit about uh, that part of King Hu's career. Well, yes, I am, Ken. Uh, King Hu's first credit as a sole director came with the 1964 film The Story of Susan, which was another uh, opera adaptation for Shaw Brothers. He followed that in 1965 with Sons of Good Earth. That film ran into some problems that ultimately soured his relationship with Shaw, specifically that the studio cut an hour from the film to comply with restrictions in some other Asian markets against depicting racial conflict. He nonetheless went on to direct the game-changing swordplay film Come Drink With Me for Shaw. Balletic and polished were other martial arts films, such as those directed by Shang She, were bloody and hyper-masculine. Come Drink With Me established a new tone for martial arts cinema that would influence directors up until the present day, as you said. It would be his last film for Shaw. The fact that he was not contracted to Shaw allowed him to slip easily from the studio's grasp. He relocated to Taiwan, whose cinematic output at the time was limited to melodramas and government-financed propaganda films, with the hope of finding a situation in which he could make his films with a minimum of interference from the man, i.e. You know, the studio heads. Uh, his former colleague, Li Hanxiang, had also relocated to Taiwan and had set up the financially doomed Grand Motion Picture Company. I don't think I'm getting that Li Hanshang was not really good at running movie studios. King Hu approached Grand's distributors, who were keen to produce movies, and ended up partnering them with them in Union Film. 
and it was for Union Film that he directed Dragon Inn. Uh, Dragon Inn would become a huge hit throughout Asia, although Shaw Brothers at first blocked it from release in Hong Kong, and ostensibly that was to make room for their own version of the film, but it was probably just to be jerks as well. Suck it, Shaw Brothers. Uh, right, yeah, exactly. I say, because uh, I think King Hu got, got the last laugh there. Yeah, did they did they in fact make a version of Dragon Inn? I can't pinpoint. Having said that, I didn't look, but I can't yeah. f- going from memory pinpoint. Oh, wait a minute, that must have been the similar one that they did. You, you know, who knows if they ever did? Yeah, you know, because yeah. uh, a lot of productions, uh, even in the sixties, they were releasing movies left to right. So who knows what came of it? But uh, you know, he wasn't contracted as a director. We should probably state for listeners, so that's why he could sort of slip out of the Shaw Brothers' grasp after having directed that successful uh, movie, so because he was contracted as an actor and a writer, so um, you know, whether that was good form or not I don't know, but it seems like Shaw Brothers were still kind of jerks, as you said. All I have left is, uh, if you hear paper rustling, that's because I've had some computer problems, so I'm doing it old school. Like Hitchcock, King Who was known for coming to the set with each scene fully visualized in his mind, as in he had the whole film in his head before anything got committed to film, providing the crew with storyboards that left little to the imagination. Which is uh, something I heard from Stuntman talking of his uh, work on uh, documentaries and stuff, Mm -hmm. that they were very appreciative for once they weren't used to having the whole thing lined up already. They were used to, like, you do your stuff now and uh, make up some action for us, go. But uh, King Who was one of the few that uh, sort of came prepared uh, fully. And uh, that's, right. uh, it, it is actually a rare thing to hear about uh, that uh, someone cares that much, even for the action. Because, uh, yeah. you know, schlocky filmmakers like Wong Jing uh, uh, normally <laughs> leaves the set when, uh, when action is concerned. You know, if you watch a movie like City Hunter... You know, Wong Jing wasn't there when when action was concerned. He was there for you know, ma- you know, making his crass jokes. You know, I love the movie, <laughs> but that was the deal. So, uh, and uh, well, you know, Wong Jing, you know, a director like that, his main purpose in life is for other directors. You know, when criticized, well, you thought my movie was bad. What about this guy over here? You know, that Wong Jing is the this guy. Obviously, he was a uh, who was a very hands-on director. You know, had a very clear vision, and that explains why he must have bristled a lot at studio interference in his work. You know, he was obviously like an auteur. And I think Shaw had a reputation for being, I mean, they were a movie factory, so of course they, you know, they did put their hands in the films a lot. Yeah, and they probably want things to flow smoothly and on time and uh, for everyone to fall in line. And when someone sticks right. out a little bit, maybe that's um, that creates a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a stir, stir, if you will. I, I also adored the story of uh, when forming Union Film and all of that. It said that King Hu was really hands-on helping to work. Uh, build the studio rather and he advertised himself for actors he helped buying equipment and uh, you know he didn't sit back and let others just do my bidding you know he was he was hands-on which is a, a, a little bit of an ador- adorable story i think 
But anyway, for his next Wuxia film, A Touch of Zen, released in 1971, uh, the story about that goes that uh, this was in production for two years, and uh, it's a long movie, it's a three-hour movie, so no wonder, and faced uh, resistance at the release stage by Union, who didn't feel a three-hour movie could fit time slots and the rigid way it wasn't part of that rigid way of releasing movies that you're used to, like 90 minutes, in and out, schedule it like we always do. This uh, didn't fall into that. Union decided to re release it as two movies and even uh, released a two-hour edit of it, but had no success really. And the full version was, uh, you know, not seen until a few years later. It was eventually assembled again, and that's what we have uh, today, thankfully. So, you know, because it happens so much, told, told that... You know, when they start to mix and match with edits, and you sometimes the full complete versions just get lost to time. F thankfully, you know, A Touch of Sand was allowed to, you know, live and breathe on its own terms um, when yeah. all was said and done. But uh, the problem, though, when we entered the 70s, that the martial arts climate was changing. And uh, A Touch of Sand fi failed to find an audience on the same scale as a Dragon Inn did a few years later. Mm -hmm. It did find international acclaim, international acclaim uh, because it won a technical award at the Cannes Film Festival in 1975, where presumably the full edit was shown now that it was assembled. So um, I don't know if that's that was the first or like the sole Taiwanese movie throughout history who has won that uh, a big at Cannes. I'm just asking sort of saying because I don't know if uh, Ang Lee or Edward Yang or Ho Sha Shen has won I mean Ho Sha Shen has won recently for Assassin but I don't know if uh, right. uh, if Taiwan has uh, had a history at uh, Cannes but uh, that was a n nice little thing uh, historically yeah yeah I don't I don't really know if that was like the first instance of that it makes sense it makes sense that a touch of Zen would be a you know a film festival film because it's it is kind of a it's kind of an arty arty martial art film it's almost like a psychedelic martial arts film certainly is yeah by, by the back Very end things the uh, yeah by the back end things turn really um uh really strange if you will so yeah trippy as they, they would say so it fits the 70s man like for, for a festival crowd at can <laughs> man yeah, yeah exactly Jacqueline Bissett, you know, smoking a doobie on the beach before oh, the King screening. Who, man. Yeah. <laughs> Touch of Zen, man. Give it its price. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, after the grand studio that we said was eventually closed, the friendly Han Chang returned to Hong Kong and, um, and Shaw Brothers, and as did King Hu, but went into business with Raymond Chow's Golden Harvest instead. And together with his own company, he got financing for two films. Fate of Lee Khan would remain with Golden Harvest, while the Valiant Ones rights would go to King Hu. And this was in 1975 for the Valiant Ones. I think the Fate of Lee Khan was a year or two earlier it's a, it a nice mishmash of uh, you know the cast we've seen in king who's taiwanese movies and uh, the hong kong stars of today because angela mao is in the movie but you also have shu feng and uh, han ying che which is um, a, he's in dragon inn he's also in a touch of zen and was also the action director on uh, king who's movies uh, han ying che is the big boss from the bruce lee movie the big boss uh, that's the actor so. mm. In 1979, King Hu shot Raining in the Mountain and Legend of the Mountain in Korea, but the progress of the decade meant that King Hu's work was becoming old-fashioned and not commercial anymore. And I can kind of agree, uh, Raining in the Mountain is not my favorite, and it seems like he stuck to his guns, you know, with that style. And uh, the 70s certainly just, you know, the martial arts uh, development just 
went in a completely different direction. Obviously, comedy was now also part of the landscape with Jackie Chan's right. breakthrough. But, uh, uh, I mean, the movies could have been good, of course. Uh, but uh, I remember Raining in the Mountain was not my favorite. Looks good, but uh, predictably. But uh, there it is. Well, I think one of the things about... I, I, I don't really know, because I haven't seen a lot of King Who's movies. I've really just seen the, you know, the triumvirate of... You know, Touch of Zen, this film, and Come Drink With Me. But it seems like the trajectory, one of the trajectories of martial arts cinema through the 70s was for it to get increasingly violent and bloody. And that didn't seem to be whose thing at all. He seemed to be, you know, more about form. And, you know, there was not a lot of blood in his movies that I've seen, so I can see how probably be. come drink with me is the bloodiest, but no wonder it was with Shaw Brothers and they liked their blood. <laughs> they're, 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 you know the end fight with Yu uh, Hua. You know, uh, yes, um, uh, he he faces off against another uh, another male person. It's not Cheng Pei Pei at that point. I remember Yu Hua's face is all bloody and blood is running down his face, and uh, yes, probably the goriest uh, and also the most realistic Shaw Brothers blood I've ever seen. Because for once, it's not uh, bright red; it's like dark red right. for once. Yes. <laughs> It doesn't look like a house, red house paint. Exactly. But uh, anyway, the remaining credits of the 1980s for King Who including a benefit, included a benefit comedy called The Juvenizer. I have not seen. A big Taiwanese historical drama called The King's Man. And he also did a couple of days on the Choi Hak production Swordsman at the end of the 80s or just at the start of the 90s. But his style and thought didn't gel with what expressed admirer Choi Hak was attempting at the time and Swordsman was really when the wire assisted choreography explosion was starting I mean Once Upon a Time in China took it to different levels but Swordsman was what Choi Hak saw a different kind of action starting with uh, Swordsman you know we've had wire assisted action and stuff but that trend of the in Hong Kong of the 90s really started with Swordsman so uh, so King Hu yeah. has like a shot left in the movie uh, as a matter of fact so you, uh, you can actually pinpoint it it's like a, five or six directors on that one it was wow. like Anne Hoy worked on that one and I think main credit goes to Raymond Lee who directed the remake of Dragon Inn I, I have a few sparse, sparse notes on it so, Swordsman, is that the one with Jet Li? Uh, he's in the second one. Swordsman stars um, actor and singer Sam Hoy. Okay, so, so he's in Swordsman 2. And, and as I recall, that's kind of a crazy movie. Indeed like, it is, indeed movie. it is. Yes. Isn't that the one where, like, a horse gets cut in half lengthwise? I assume so. I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Just assume so. It's crazy. It's nuts. It's uh, the big uh, Bridget Lynn movie where she plays Invincible Age, uh, one of her iconic roles. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. That That is a crazy, crazy, crazy movie. I don't think I've seen the first one. I haven't either, I haven't either. So it uh, might, like, tonally might be totally different to Swordsman 2 and mm-hmm. even Swordsman 3. But anyway, uh, 1993's Painted Skin saw King Who return to the ghost story origins, a touch of some partly touched upon and uh, during that time he also relocated to Pasadena with his wife so he, he relocated closer to your haunts even though Pasadena might be 10 hours away I don't know yeah it is about 10 hours away it's about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles it's nice though I'm happy for him it's a very it's a nice little community there 
He did that all while trying to get finance for a project about the Chinese coming to California to set up the railroad. And John Wu and his producing partner Terence Chang was involved at one point. But through many drafts of the script, it never really came to be. And King Hu eventually passed away in Pasadena in 1997. And uh, there's no notes if he was sick or not. It was just, uh, he just passed away. So. So he never, he didn't make any movies after he moved to the States then? No, he didn't, no. So I, I think his last completed one is uh, is uh, Painted Skin from 1993, uh, uh, which was is, was a decent little ghost story, atmospheric. It felt very King Who, but again, it was the wrong time for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, Sam Hong is in it, and you can see Sam Hong in A Touch of Zen, so he had a relationship with King Who. It was nice to see, even though I'm, I'm not terribly surprised that it isn't part of the discussion as such. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a Donnie Yen movie called Painted Skin that might just be called that because it's uh, basing its story on the same written material, uh, possibly. That was it, but uh, a, a multifaceted career that uh, a lot of people remember despite. You don't need to have 30 movies on your resume to be uh, remembered. Uh, sometimes King Who did 15 films in total, so... Uh, but anyway, let's uh, move on to the review. So I've talked for a little bit, uh, so I'll, I'll throw it over to Todd for a brief opinion, first of all, of uh, Dragon Inn. I, recognizing that this is an iconic picture, I mean, it's definitely a beautifully shot film, very well acted. A little, I found it a little needlessly confusing in that things like, you know, and I don't know who to blame for that. It might've just been the translation, you know, it's never really clear. It was never clear to me who, as since I asked you who Polly Chang's uh, character was supposed to be and things like there being two different, the eunuch had two different armies or something like that, Mm -hmm. which was very hard to keep track of. I had, as I told you earlier, I had kind of an epiphany while I was watching I know what to do with my life now. (laughs) Right, exactly. I'm going to be a eunuch. No, Todd, no! I'll become an itinerant eunuch swordsman. I I realize I don't really enjoy King Who's movies that much. I mean, probably of the three of his movies I've seen, I like Dragon Inn the best. But it still feels a little ponderous to me, a little slow. And the fights don't ever really hit that spot for me you know i respect the movies (laughs) you know i respect them i don't think it's a bad movie it just they just don't really do it for me right on well we'll 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 stop you right there and get into the nitty-gritty of it but it's all like uh, as listeners might know this is not uh, one of those podcasts where we're gonna argue about shit no no i'm 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 cool if you're cool (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't, like, I'd still recommend it. It's a classic, and a lot of people love this movie. And I have said on this podcast, like, ooh, you know, Dragon Inn, that's a classic. I'd seen it before, and I'd really gilded it in my memory, but watching it now, it's like, nah, this is, I'm kind of bored with this. It has happened to me before, too. Uh, I have had a movie or two in my uh, podcast view in life that hasn't survived as much uh, as uh, that initial impression but uh, you know for my brief opinion is it the best sword player wuxia ever made hell no it's not but as a fan of king who and his eye for cool looking elegant looking entertainment for the genre this is to me an entertaining exercise in style 
actually is more about style than anything else. Uh, it's not really revolutionary story-wise, but it's um, it's in a, an important stepping stone in stepping stone into making the genre great. He didn't lead the entire genre. A lot of other people did and took it to even higher levels, in my opinion. Um, it's very important in that regard. Hugh had the like whose eye for the cool though i think his eye for cool looking cinema is um is uh, is his own uh, thankfully so yeah and he had a good eye for actors uh for faces i mean he discovered as we were saying this is her first movie and she is definitely a very charismatic star little did he know uh, what uh, what uh, role <laughs> she would take in the future <laughs> yes master 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 <laughs> it's just just a few years later she'd be fighting rubber octopuses in little hero that's how Taiwanese cinema uh, evolved, indeed. But, uh, you know, speaking of story templates and, and it being very basic and not very revolutionary, I mean, I have a gut feeling swordplay movies and, and written work of this kind had explored similar templates before. So Dragon Inn did not bring anything new or groundbreaking. I mean, it's a basic conflict and it's a springboard for action and style, but... Uh, you know, you know, as with anything, it's what vision you bring, which is mainly stylistic here, which is good enough for me. Yes, the story is actually pretty generic. I mean, if you take away sort of maybe that's why there's sort of all the unnecessary detail, because the story is a really basic one where, you know, the one party is like hiding out, you know, all centers on a specific place. I think I've said this about another film, but it really reminded me of John Ford's Rio Bravo, you know, where John Wayne and Dean Martin and, and Ricky Nelson are like holed up in the jailhouse in the small town. And they're waiting for the bad guys to come to town and try and free their fellow gang member who they've got in the prison. And they're just, it's sort of a siege drama where they're just waiting for the big for most movie are waiting for the big confrontation and all focuses on this one location which i think is a really kind of iconic setup i think there's a lot of movies like that and as i think there's a lot of a lot of wuja films that borrow from the western genre oh oh definitely i i think yeah there's um there's a case for this being uh you know, re- very recognizably global when you break it down. Dragon Inn isn't terribly local, which is, uh, ma- you know, makes it approachable, which is a good thing. Like, he, he liked his inn, in said uh, uh, King Who, so there you have the Rio Bravo comparison quite uh, set and very valid, it sounds like. It all sort of boils down to, I mean, I can't offer up any deeper opinion than that, and I think when watching King Hill's movies that I think his style is rather cool, and he had a, it can feel and could feel hypnotic the way he saw the genre, like right. the, the way it sounds, the way it looks, the way it moves, despite operating within a very ordinary genre template uh, and that is why i think dragon in survives for me when i look at it i don't look at it as religion i look at it as a cool entertaining stylistic exercise and uh, it that that is good enough for me uh, and he never really made deep films as such i mean a touch of zen goes off the rails and of course <laughs> attempts that uh, you know deeper buddhism i'm not sure i get it all but i think it's still uh, I, I like the style within it and i don't have a problem with the three hour running time so uh, it's it's about as deep as my sort of infatuation for king who goes it it's cool 
It's pretty cool. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all right. Especially after I smoke a bowl. You know, maybe the problem was I just didn't get keyed into that hypnotic rhythm uh, for one reason or another uh, while I was watching this film. Because I do like films like that. I mean, Tarkovsky's Solaris is one of my favorite movies. And that's the ultimate, like, you know, like nothing happens in that movie for a really long time. But you can just... You know, if you're open to it, you can really just kind of get keyed into the rhythm and 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 hypnotized by it. Totally, and uh, and and you know, one thing that's um, also you you touched upon, which I, I I have a few notes on throughout the review, but I have it early in my notes as well, is that one problem is that King Who wasn't leading the way action wise because the the depiction of action is a lot. It's an element in transition. Right. So it does feel rather primitive the way action is executed, the build up to action and how the camera sort of works um, in tandem with him and the audio works in tandem with them. Right. That's all fine and cool. But uh, it uh, it would take other directors and action directors to start to uh, make action and martial arts on screen really uh, take off uh, because it feels... I mean, it's the barrier of time here that, uh, you know, it is yes. an old movie, but it does feel a bit clunkier than we're used to. But, uh, you know, they're doing they're doing a good job of trying to make it feel really like frenetic and and a bit violent sure. and that. But uh, it's clearly, I think, um, it's the crutch for new viewers used to only modern cinema, I think. The, when is, the film's from 1967, right? So... Films were all, all were still transitioning from that sort of Chinese opera style of fighting at that point, you know. But I but I do feel like the fighting in uh, in Dragon Inn doesn't quite live up to the adjective balletic, which is actually the adjective I use to describe his fighting. I mean, that's what everybody said about says about. Come, come drink with me is that the fighting is more poetic and that's why they have Cheng Pei Pei because she was a dancer and you know I would disagree with that because it's all the balletic the balletics is all the build up you know and uh, she right. it's it's one the build up I, I'm such a fan of he, he has a he has a good grasp of how to use Chinese uh, percussion style instruments to build up his uh, fights. So I, I, I think even in Come Drink With Me, a lot of things are in transition. I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I think it's entertaining uh, and it's a quite swift you know, movie. It's uh, one of his shorter movies and she is iconic. But I've, I've never felt that that style of action like rocked my boat like in right. through, yeah. you know, to the core. But yeah, directors like Chang Chie working with his action directors uh, Lao Galung and Tong Gai, they among other people would start elevating you know wuxia style action and regular kung fu and other action right. directors uh, in Taiwan and Hong Kong. So it is a transitional piece that stylistically still is its own and in some cases untouched. In some like uh, some flourishes are so at an elite level for me but in terms of action which is really what many people are looking for it's not what you should hinge all your hopes on when watching dragon in how how action is conveyed when they start fight but you're right a lot of it is about this remind me of real 
Bravo too. A lot of the movie is building the tension. I mean, there are scenes in Rio Bravo of them just sitting around playing cards and like they're killing time while waiting for this, but all the while the shadow of this, you know, deadly confrontation is hanging over it. And that's what this movie is about. So a lot of it is, you know, sort of the the scenes where not much is happening, but you're anticipating something happening eventually. But then when something does happen, it's not as cathartic as you would hope for, I guess would be the word. They're trying their damnedest to convey it uh, well, and, and in some instances they, they do, uh, not the, the, the specific scene where Xi Jun like, uses the container with the wine, he, take, he has an arrow, he puts that oh, yes. in the wine and then chucks that to the side and hits someone with the arrow standing outside of the window and you see blood on yes. the window. That kind of That's stuff pretty is pretty neatly done, I think. So they yes. t- technically they were onto something, but you, you're right, it's still... We haven't had a kung fu movie boom yet, you know, and and it uh-huh. feel, and it feels like this is action of its time, which I'm sure just blew people away back then. But it is a little bit of a barrier for us to to overcome, definitely. The way he shoots uh, vistas is something I enjoy. It's not a whole lot of it, but the, it, his eye when he does so many such simple things of just uh, lining up a couple of people on horses and them watching the foreground or the background, you know, far, 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 far away. Beautiful compositions, really great location shooting in this movie. Beautiful scenery. And so many got their movie shooting outdoors throughout these decades. They did it so damn poorly, you know. He was one of the few that yeah. made sure to make these vistas look great, then cut to some stupid ass Taiwanese Hong Kong comedy shooting on the same location probably in widescreen <laughs> right. and not doing a good job at all so I think his eye right. for the outdoors uh, you know he liked his in very much but his eye for the outdoors is uh, mm-hmm. kind of unmatched um, too and it was probably in his head man uh, as people have said like this was storyboarded this was probably shot listed which is uh, probably unusual yeah apparently that was he was sort of unique for doing that it sounds like that he did bring storyboards to the set doesn't sound like everybody did that. I think at Shaw Brothers, they there was probably there was an established rhythm to the films. You know that it was like, okay, well, we're doing a kung fu movie, so you know what to do, and you know it was more of a rote process. But he, yeah, had had a vision. Yeah, you're right. You hear that story about Shaw Brothers sometimes that, and you you sort of just recognize that oh, this is the Shaw style. And when certain directors right. then went on to make other movies for other people they found their voice. So sometimes Shaw Brothers was, uh, you know, as I said, you had to keep in line with a lot of things. And uh, Right. You had to have, like, the entire cast involved in a fight at the end of, the, of whatever movie it was. And uh, thinking about this movie started me thinking about, I mean, there's, in, in cult fandom, you know, there's, there's orthodoxies and one of the and one of the orthodoxies of martial arts cinema i think is that king who is like i mean he is obviously a ground he's a groundbreaker he was a trailblazer but you know that he was you know an iconic director an important director and that touch of zen and dragon in are very important films so much so that i was just kind of you know, taking for granted that I I liked it <laughs> when when I realized I didn't really like it that much at all. 
they say it's good, so it must be good. <laughs> they speak. Right. It's like I am a I am a blogger who writes about you know uh, martial arts cinema among many other things, and hence I must toe the line of of loving King Who. And no, and I, you don't. I, I do not. So that, that's why I'm coming out. The other thing I thought about is how uh, uh, it's like I was thinking. Well, maybe it's because I'm not as immersed in martial arts cinema as I used to be because that's kind of what guys like you and I do is we immerse ourselves in a genre which is like everybody else just watches movies that are entertaining but we will just take a genre and uh, and and just delve into it and it gives you a perspective on individual films that is different if you are just visiting a genre once in a while you know which is like you know maybe I couldn't see the nuances uh, in in this film or the innovations in this film because I wasn't living in the world of martial arts cinema. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I mean, you, I, I know you well enough that you are totally knowledgeable to approach most genres, including martial arts, and you just call the movies for what they are, not in a crappy way, but... You like something or you don't like something. It comes down to that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not in love with it, but I'm really fond of uh, looking looking at it and it's very entertaining. But I don't think it's about that you're distant from the genre. There are types of cinema that is so local in intent. It has local humor. It has local references. Right. And it's culturally relevant for its time. And watching it 20 years later or whatever, that might make you feel like a stranger to it. But no, I don't think... Yeah, you, I, I, I don't think you're... Uh, the wrong audience for it or anything. Not at all. I think okay. you're, you're perfectly suitable for it, and you, and uh, your your view of it is not uh, like like you have the right glasses on. Is what I'm saying to to watch it. You know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't need to apologize for my opinion. That's not who I am. But I guess I'm just aware that a lot of people love this movie. And I don't have any interest. I, I came not to bury Dragon Inn uh, or to insult anybody who loves Dragon Inn because I think there's, you know, I can see its appeal. You'll only insult anyone if you say, this is my opinion and you should follow my opinion. That's the only right. way yeah. you'll insult someone. And you'll never do that, Todd. Suck on my opinion. Yeah, no. I, I have a blog. Just... <laughs> Listen to me. Right. I am a, as, as a blogger, actually, I beg to differ. Yeah, I don't want to be that guy. I'm just, yeah, I'm just calling it like a sit. Hey, indeed, indeed. Thank you, Ken. That's uh, that's no worse. Like money exchanging hands after that exchange. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Checks in the mail. Speaking a little bit specifically about lead actor Shi Jun, who I'm only familiar with through King Who's movies, essentially, and, and uh, the odd Taiwanese movie, um, playing the uh, swordsman who is called, I mean, is the one we see um, early on. Uh, well, Xiao Xiao Tzu, but he, he's the one who first arrives at the inn, who they try to poison, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, he, he sees through that, and I, I love that, you know, he's a speck on the horizon when we see him, and then we get a full view of a very assured-looking character and actor, you know, carrying his umbrella and going to the Dragon Inn and uh, Dragon Gate Inn, even. Classic hero introduction. I, I he, he comes to the forefront in A Touch of Zen because he's the lead there, and it's a, very much a different uh, character. And uh, he, he always came off as an assured 
and uh, comfortable actor on screen and uh, could do the switcheroo to playful character coming in there, oh, I'll just sit down, hello everybody, and then boom, I'm a swordsman, I'm gonna kill you all. Like he could, you know, and he could see, he sees through whole, the whole poisoning of the wine scheme, you know, the waiter tries to alert him, you know, in a subtle way, but uh, Shijun's character knows those signals, but he knows how to not show it as a character and an actor. And, uh, and 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 then when they think they have poisoned him because he drinks a little bit, he drinks it. He gets to do a little comic bit because he uh, he pretends to die and he starts lifting the bench and starts twitching and I'm dying dramatically. <laughs> and I think it's badass when he actually spits the poison wine in the face of another person. Yeah, that was great. I mean, they, these are you know far removed from the complex action. They, you know, these are technically things they can do and that's why i, right. I think uh, these are some of the more memorable uh, sequences and i i can so spot the confidence in everyone crafting this um yes definitely definitely a very well-made film beautiful as you've said the the uh location footage and just the compositions gorgeous you know oh no i'm just saying there's just not enough in, to keep me interested Speaking of Polyquan, I mean, again, she broke through uh, with this movie, um, you know, as an iconic looking stern serious force, you know, even upon entrance, yeah. this sort of woman, who everybody thinks is a man, and then, oh my god, you're a woman, <laughs> you, you, know, yeah. you know, when we see her hair and all of that. You know, what we see when she enters the screen, you know, these uh, these confrontations where they are continually still trying to avoid being poisoned, I think they're played with just enough humorous touches where you realize that no yeah. one is taking this deadly serious, uh, what they're making here. Dragon Inn is a deadly serious art, so, uh, you, you know, I think that's uh, something to keep in mind, that... Uh, there is a distance to the genre at hand that they're making here. They're not being pomp- pompous or pretentious about it. Uh, I, I agree. At 110 minutes, that does present a problem, though. Um, mainly towards the back end. Uh, yeah. You know, K- King Who is uh, ambitious. Maybe a little bit too ambitious for his own good, because the action... I mean, I'm, I'm not meaning to talk about the finale and, and, and my notes right now, but I think it is too extensive of a finale for, 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 for them to execute at this point in their technical career and all of that. So. Yeah, I, I agree that it's a little overlong and the end seems like, yeah, the end kind of drags on. It has that sort of feeling like, you know, there's like a succession of endings, you know, rather than just a, a tight, conclusive ending. I did have a question about the final fight because much like in touch of zen it seemed like it was getting a little psychedelic there like the villain seemed like there were all these weird kind of electronic noises on the soundtrack and i mean did i miss something did they drug him or did he drop acid or something before that fight i i can't really explain it but there is a technique that they sort of use against him that i i, I mean it sort of looks uh cheesy on screen when they all run in a circle around him and he becomes oh, right, sort yes. of confused about that but i think they're they're trying to convey you know martial arts uh, movie uh, sort of tropes uh, possibly uh, i mean by having him confused by people running really fast around him oh so that's all that it was okay 
I saw them running around. I think that's the one you're referring to. I mean, I mean, the the thing is, the last thirty minutes or so is like wall to wall action, and the the pro, the pros to that is that King Hu seemingly has about a hundred locations available to him because there's not there's something new wherever you turn. Like, oh boy, that looks fantastic! What a great yeah. wide, wide screen shot, and rather than like uh, being stuck in the like Causeway Bay. Shaw Brothers lot, they, he seems to have like the entirety of Taiwan at his disposal, like just go nuts and shoot like each scenario at a new place, which makes it all like it's bearable to watch, but it does go on for, especially the end fight when the Pai Ying comes in, I think there's where you should have had a tighter pace to it all. Uh, I mean, he, he's still trying to stay true and does that fairly well to his style of uh, building up tension before action is concerned, but I think there's there's a little bit too much of it at the back end of uh, of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It does have a great fin- like final. Uh, it's not a spoiler, really. So I'll, well, it is, but I don't really care. At the end, you know, Pai Ying's character gets beheaded, and I love the build up to that. But that's like the very last thing we see. Boom, the movie is over. So classic kung fu movie ending. It's like there's no, they don't have epilogues. The, the, the word epilogue is not in the, uh, in the vocabulary of uh, Hong Kong or Taiwanese martial arts filmmakers. Yeah, just look at all those uh, ninja movies Godfrey Ho made. Like when the final technique was delivered, even those like the end, like the big red title called Come On, the end, we're done. <laughs> right, yes. So yeah. I, I It's like that. the movie equivalent of a wire song. You know, when they were done, when the song was done, it was done. You know, they didn't like do extra choruses. Boom. The end. It can be argued to maybe be suitable to sit through this movie like twice or something to just sort of soak in uh-huh. the, the entirety of the action. I don't know. But there, there is a little bit too much, as I said, of it here for, and they're not at this technical level yet anyway. I mean, it wouldn't take long for other filmmakers to really get the fantasy aspect of what we're dealing with here right. I mean, just look at the Ghost Hill that we reviewed, and that's an early oh, 70s yeah. movie. That's a great, great movie. So, I, I mean, the technical that. chops were there. It was brewing, and uh, King Who brought, you know, the style and grandeur of it all, but his background was in action, and his action director, Han Jing Che, wasn't the best action director there is out there. His work is fairly well represented in especially A Touch of Zen for me, but he wasn't, you know, up to the level of a Yong Wo Ping or Lao Ga Lung and those kind of guys. So, uh, it, And that's the inspiring thing. What King Hu established, you know, various snippets of it would be taken by other filmmakers and they would create their own voice and started to elevate right. the cinema technically as the decades uh, wore on and all of that. So, uh, yeah. I'd argue that one of those was one of my favorite uh, directors, Choi Yen. I mean, I think the fighting, and I mean, his swordplay movies, the fighting, he incorporated action with that kind of dreamlike atmosphere, uh, sort of that meditative feeling, but also, and very, made these very colorful, entertaining movies at the same time, but they had a very unique unique mood to them i and i do think that the king who sort of opened up the potential for that to happen to like focus on mood focus on uh suspense focus on tension 
you know, and not just have action, 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 action. Even though I was bored, I, I, I admire the film and I see the innovation and I like a lot of what came about as a result of it. And that is entirely fair. So that's why, that's why this is not like uh, me offering up a counterpoint. I'm, 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 I'm totally on board with you on that. I mean, even in a touch of sand, which I quite, quite like. I think it's a better movie than Dragon in this. Uh, the main aspect I enjoy of that is that it's a big ghost story tease, which I think is very playful. Like uh, for half a movie, it seems like it's a ghost story. It's not. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And they, there's a lot of like cool stylistic flourishes that comes with that. It, it's a it's a good time to. Um, if you want to introduce yourself to King Who's two most quoted movies, that this is a good time to, to do so. You can make up your own mind, which is what we do on, on this show. And uh, we all respect each other's opinions uh, for it. So, indeed, there it is. <laughs> I wanted to mention just a little bit about um, a t- tiny, tiny, tiny bit about a few sentences on the remake of uh, Dragon Inn, which was was produced in 1992, uh, produced by Choi Hak and directed by Raymond Lee. Just like the original, simple and basic premise, but this time it's embedded in the Choi Hak-led style of martial arts in the 90s. So it's mm. more hyper, it's more frenzied in terms of the how the wire action is shot, and uh, it's all, you know, stylistically sufficient uh, for that. Uh, for that kind of style. It has some alternate plotting and attempt at emotional depth, but uh, it's kind of too basic to register, but the stars look good. Is it a Hong Kong film or a Thai film? Or a Taiwanese film? It would be argued to be a, a Hong Kong movie indeed. It stars uh, Maggie Chung, Tony Leung got by Bridget Lin, and uh, you know a lot of character actors as well. Uh, Donnie Yen plays the uh, eunuch. So a uh, y- young Donnie Yen. Great cast. And uh, I mean, Bridget Lynn is, you know, gives it her all, and she's an icon of the genre. But uh, it it doesn't have the depth it uh, wants to, uh, you know, that it is attempt- attempting. But there is some messed up, gory sights for the sandstorm end fight. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. So, but so do, so don't expect a lot of it uh, just because it's Choi Hak, just because it's the remake of Dragon Inn. It's one of many '90s movies of its kind. That's a decent watch, you know. It's a lot of fun. There's some messed up, uh, some some messed up sides at the end that uh, just uh, Donnie has like leg explodes, or arm explodes, but he still <laughs> manages to sort of fight back. Uh, it's a, it's it's a lot of fun. It's just a flesh wound. Exactly. <laughs> I will say that in the climactic fight in uh, Dragon Inn, the original, I was kind of surprised that all of a sudden there were. There was a wire effects, like people started flying around, which had not happened at all. And you know, there were a couple trampoline shots where someone would jump, and it'd be like boing, and they, but no people flying. And then at the end, it's so early in development that when they did try, it, it was reserved for very specific moments. Uh, ah. uh, so again, something that would turn out brilliant, uh, especially in the 70s and even in the 80s. Uh, so some filmmakers really used it to their advantage. The trampoline stuff, I thought, worked very well. It seems like they had the experience to make those uh, jumps work and all of that. They're not like... I think uh, so too. You, you don't see the trampoline or anything. And uh, th- these are elevated powers we're dealing with here in technique. So... I think the trampolines do do their thing on on that note. So uh, yeah. right, and the and definitely the stunt people were very acrobatic, you know, doing flips and stuff. That was very yeah, that was visually very uh, very cool. 
So yeah, I don't have any other notes, whereas I recommend it. If you have an interest in Dragon Inn, there's uh, no excuse uh, like to wait because it's all available to you. So uh, you don't need to go to the underground to find uh, a widescreen print that is subtitled of Dragon Inn. Like, uh, and very crisp. That edition is very nice looking. I mean, it was on DVD in Japan, it was on DVD in Germany, in Taiwan, but uh, this is the new, you know, 4K restoration. Whatever that means, I don't know, they used the number 4, they used the 11K, <laughs> I guess it's a 4K restoration, I don't know about these things, but it's a high definition uh, restoration, obviously. Yeah. Well, when Criterion puts it out, they'll have a little extra about the restoration, I'm sure. Yeah, they didn't do that on the, it, it, because it's available in, in the UK on Blu-ray in one of those blue-slash-DVD dual-format editions that uh, looks absolutely stunning, and they have some uh, uh, notes on the restoration here and there, but nothing extensive as such, but it looks absolutely stunning to me. It's uh, the, intention, you know, the intentional look, it seems, like the sand... The, the the sand scenes, the outdoor scenes looks proper and all of that. So yes, they didn't go to town and started to manipulate the movie just because it's 2016. Now we're gonna make it look like this. So uh, uh, so you can pick up this edition uh, easily. I mean, if you're in the UK, obviously you go to Amazon and uh, you'll find find it from Eureka Entertainment. And I'm sure you can import it to the US if you're interested. But bear in mind, it is coded for Region B for the Blu-ray and uh, the US and other territories is Region A. But fear not, the Criterion Collection might indeed uh, feature Dragon Inn as part of their collection. The A Touch of Zen is confirmed for uh, July 2016. Janus or Janus Films, I think, are doing a limited cinema run of both A Touch of Zen and Dragon Inn. And if it's with them, then that's a firm connection to Criterion. So hopefully an announcement is not too far off in terms of Dragon Inn's Blu-ray or Blu-ray appearance on the U.S. market. As for me, I'd, I'd recommend this movie. I just do so with a few caveats. I mean, if you don't have a lot of tolerance for sort of very meditative filmmaking, this movie may not be for you. But if you do, if that intrigues you, yes, definitely. And also because it's a historically, if you have... You know, if you're interested in martial arts cinema, this is a historic film, as as is Touch of Zen. So, you know, so I even though I didn't enjoy Touch of Zen, I would recommend that to anybody who's interested in martial arts films from a historical perspective. By the 70s, uh, uh, they had developed their action uh, sort of um, instincts a little bit better, better because mm-hmm. I think the action in A Touch of Zen is... A lot more creative, uh, they use a lot more wire work. I mean, the bamboo forest fight in A Touch of Zen, I think, still holds up fairly well today. It looks damn cool, actually, the way it's set up, and that setting is just like, ooh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) I saw A Touch of Zen quite a long time ago. Maybe it's time to give that another look. But uh, seeing as the Criterion are bringing out that one, uh, it's uh, presumably based on the same 4K restoration, and that too looks absolutely stunning. So because because the thing with Blu-ray, like they can strike great like prints and restore it really well, and then someone sits there and sees what are those little dots on screen, i.e., film grain. Let's remove that and just scrub the movie clean for modern audiences and. Right. Th- that is a problem with high definition treatment. Thankfully, no such thing occurred 
extensively anyway. You can do you can do a subtle sort of uh, pause of uh, cleanup, uh, but uh, the grain structure is intact. It looks sharp and stunning, and I think uh, you're gonna see that on the US edition in July as well. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I hate it when they clean them up to the extent they just look like a Korean soap opera. Yeah, you know, indeed. <laughs> they just like so wax yes, works. I know. I know of what you speak. So there it is. Hey, let me just ask you spontaneously before we all uh, uh, sign off and all of that. Uh, how's the uh, high definition treatment of Bollywood movies? Uh, uh, old on you? Terrible, really? Terrible. Yes, it's shameful. I mean, I was when I was trying to promote my book, Funky Bollywood, available from Amazon and other online retailers. I was trying to set up some screenings, you know, of some of the more classic films and people were saying, well, is there a 35 mil either a 35 millimeter print or a Blu-ray available? Nothing. There was nothing. There I mean, just India is not does not have a culture of, of film preservation. No one has thought like, you know, maybe some of the newer films come out on Blu-ray, but like a film like Sholay, which is like, you know, the most beloved Hindi film uh, of all time, there's no Blu-ray edition. You, you know, the qual the general quality of, of Indian DVDs, especially of older films, is pretty terrible. Wow. You know, I think a lot of the I don't mean to go on and on about this. Well, well I asked you the question. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> I'm interested. There, the only film I found that was on Blu-ray Blu is Diwar, which is a seminal Amitabh Bachchan film. Uh, which That is good, because that's a classic film. That's one of my very favorite Bollywood films. So I was glad to see that get a little love, but I have not seen anything else like that. And, and that's one of the reasons like I wrote the book, is I hope if I could you know, if more interested could, could be generated in these films, that they'd start getting a little better treatment. People would try and find, you know, print, source prints, etc. It partly sounds like the problem with uh, sort of uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies, but the, the problem there, and I don't know if it's that in India, that a million companies made movies, man. And then those movies dropped off the face of the earth and finding the print is the first challenge when you find it who has the rights who knows you're like oh that right. triad company financed this movie they did one movie this movie they're not here anymore we can't do anything about this now problem in the, in the india too all of the films they didn't really have a studio system so every film was made by a different little fly-by-night production company so the rights of all these films are totally up in the air as with like Chinese films or Hong Kong films, uh, you know, I love old Cantonese films. And there's uh, a lot of stuff in the uh, Hong Kong film archives would be great to see released. A lot of Choi Yen's early films, there's a film he did called The Black Rose, mm -hmm. which is sort of a diabolic type, you know, a film of a of a masked avenger type movie really entertaining it's out on vcd i think if it had a dvd release a wider dvd release it would be a huge cult film but and Choi yen apparently owns the rights but no one's doing that and then there's all these other films uh of similar nature that are just kind of sitting in the archives and that the only way you can see them 
to go there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. There, there is uh, that very place you can visit if you are in Hong Kong. You can go to the Hong Kong Film Archive and rent uh, rent the movie and watch it there. So, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's the state of things. But at least uh, you know a couple of the union films. Uh, in case uh, you know, case in point, Dragon in Touch of Sen have come out on DVD. It has been. Uh, the ho- the label Hoker Hoker DVDs or whatever in Taiwan they have released quite a few well great looking and re- therefore remastered Union films specifically so uh, there is uh, someone did something at one point uh, but uh, it's not a constant thing unfortunately so there it is I mean I don't have anything else to announce for next time we'll go back to the drawing board and see what we are going to pursue next there's certainly still options out there so uh, we're, me and Todd are gonna have a, have a five hour sit down uh, and uh, discuss whether we're gonna discuss face pissing or something <laughs> more serious and that's a discussion that maybe we should branch off into not yet another sub podcast of podcasts on fire and have it be you know face pissing taiwan piss or something like taiwan Taiwan, (laughs) yes taiwan urination i don't know taiwan urination theater my friend (laughs) (laughs) i love that that we have to do that even if the subject is not urination we have to do a podcast with that name well, 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 my friend, let's uh, finish this one off with some brief contact information. And this has been Taiwan Noir on the Podcast on Fire Network. We are available on podcastonfire.com, maybe in the future, Taiwan Urination Theatre. <laughs> you'll have to, uh, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to accept Taiwan Noir in the meantime uh, for its unofficial home. Uh, we have plenty of shows on Hong Kong movies, Korean movies, Japanese movies, and we even do bonus episodes every now and again. Our email is podcastonfire.com at googlemail.com if you want to reach us on social media click the various buttons at the top of our page to our facebook twitter and to our itunes and to our stitcher radio stream and you can also check out my writing on sogoodreviews.com a variety of uh, taiwanese hong kong genre movies both uh, for adults and uh, and uh, more kiddie friendly material if you will and my video hub is lisikvideo.com the thing with hong kong movies and taiwanese movies yes it's a kids movie and there's the violence <laughs> as you well know todd like a kids movie means that kids as well as adults get horribly murdered in them. <laughs> <laughs> so there it is uh okay that's the end of my plugs oh i'm at, uh, on twitter as well at so good review so the floor is yours what do you want to plug in conclusion of this episode how do you like this surname? Golden Shower Warriors? That's another. That's an alternative. Okay. That made me feel so uncomfortable listening to. Oh uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> as <laughs> Taiwan urination theater, I have no problem with. But like, uh. <laughs> okay. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, you can read my writings on my blog, die danger die die kill dot uh, if you go over to the right-hand sidebar, there's links to my Twitter, my Facebook page, my uh, Letterboxd account, all that good stuff. Buy my book, Funky Bollywood. Listen to my radio show, Pop Offensive. Listen to my other podcast, Infernal Brains with Taurus Tarkas. And that's all I got for the moment. Multimedia man out. Be- <laughs> yes, exactly. Dro- drops the mic. <laughs> Right, exactly. 
Alrighty, buddy. We'll link to all of that in the show post. But uh, in the meantime, this has been our uh, episode on King Who's Dragon Inn. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. So I've been Kenny B. I've been Todd Statman and will continue to be, supposedly. And now we're going to have the meeting about the Taiwan Urination Theater listeners uh, off air. <laughs> this meeting starts now.